On this episode, we discuss the liturgy, what it is and why we do it. Welcome to the Anglican Podcast, Faith and Honor. Thank you for joining us. On this podcast, we hope to discuss many issues of interest to Anglicans worldwide on matters of history, doctrine, and values. The following is a recording of us having one of such discussions. It is important for us to know what you think, so wherever you happen to be listening, on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, and YouTube, please drop us a line and let us know what you think. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our podcast. My name is James, and I'm joined by my two friends here, Brian Oldfield and Bart Gingrich. That's me. Hi, everybody. Well, today we're talking about something uh, Anglican specific and centric, and that is the liturgy. Uh, and we'll talk about the church as well further down the line. We want to ask the questions about what is the liturgy, why do we do it, um, what is it all about? And so let me, I guess, start with Brian. What is the liturgy? Well, the liturgy, if we want to be just very technical, is just the form of how we pray and what we do in worship. But when we speak of the liturgy, we're referring to a lot more. And so particularly Anglican liturgy comes from this great medieval tradition based on St. Benedict's rule, where there are multiple offices. So these are offices are different times of the day where there are different forms of prayer. And the point of all these prayers is not only are we praying to God, but the liturgy is actually forming a person in prayer. So there's a lot to unpack here that we'll have to do as uh, we continue to talk about this, but the first thing we need to understand is that the liturgy is the form of how we pray together as a church. Right. So I guess an average person would experience that just on a Sunday. If you go to an, an evangelical church, you might just have some some worship music, right? Some preaching sort of ad hoc. Um, and then what happens, uh, Bart, when you go into an Anglican, sort of a traditional Anglican service? Well, it depends on what time and what day it is, um, what the event is. But it can often be a communion service. It can be a morning or evening prayer service. That's kind of the big three that highlight a regular Anglican life. You could have um, services for baptism, for uh, matrimony, for funeral. So there's all sorts of orders for different services where God's people come together uh, to approach his throne, to worship as his people, and to render their service of praise and thanksgiving and intercession for the world. Um, and when you were talking about the evangelical situation, I mean, here's the interesting thing. Every church does have a liturgy. Every church does have an order of service that they do, and it, they often fall into a habit. Some actively try to fight against it. But what's interesting is that liturgy is an inescapable reality for any sort of faith that is held in common where people meet together in particular places and times. Um, but what's interesting for folks like Anglicans is we've tried to put a lot of thought into how we do it, what we're doing, um, and trying to inform it through the entire scope of the church's life through history. Right, so you come in and there's something already predefined, what to say, what to do, to kneel, to stand, right? To, when to say certain things. Um, that's a quite un a unique experience, uh, at least that I found sort of early on. Um, and one of the common, I guess, refrains on that is that uh, you don't get to say what you'd like to say. What do you think about that, Bart? 
Mm, I don't know. Sometimes I do get to say what I very, very much like to say. I just didn't know I wanted to say it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, right. But that's that's true. Um, just because it's something that I don't feel like saying off the top of my head, it's not about me at the time. And also, um, it's not necessarily what I want to say, but hopefully it's what I need to say. Uh, a good liturgy will do that. It's what needs to be said. Leave out what doesn't need to be said. That sort of value, that economical brevity value, might be a uniquely Anglican feature. I would say in contrast to some of our Roman Catholic and Greek or Eastern friends. But the the thought is um, to fit in with the rhythm of the day. You know, here are these prayers. And then here's the rhythm of the week. Here is, you know, uh, Eucharist on Sunday. Uh, here's the rhythm of the year. Here are the special feast days and fast days. And everything is kind of built into the entire life. So when we talk about liturgy, we're, the scope is actually tremendous in how it applies to life. Uh, we just tend to focus on the worship services. Well, also, I liked what you said with the rhythm of the day, the week, and even the rhythm of the year, but also with the prayer book offices or the services, it's the rhythm for life. You have baptism when you're born, you have confirmation uh, after catechesis, all the way until we're put in the grave, there is a service or an office for it. That the point of the prayer book, or the English prayer book in particular, is to really um, create a Christian from cradle to grave, to live life in such a way that is honorable and pleasing to God. Yeah. And uh, when someone says that's not... Uh authentically expressing your inner thoughts. I like what Bart said earlier as well, that uh, you don't you don't really ask yourself what you want in a service like that because you're thinking about what you're you know meant to say and what uh, what what other people are saying. And so it sort of defocuses the experience from you and puts it back on God, which is I think a truly uh, interesting and creative way to to engender piety and uh, because because it's such an ancient form of piety it's almost like uh that's what christianity is supposed to be about uh, it's not supposed to be this personalistic selfish i get what i want i say what i want but rather it's supposed to be a kind of a, a holistic uh we do things together and there is a an um, an intentionality towards God that's not focused on me and my own selfish needs and wants. Yeah, and the other thing too, it's a maturity issue. Um, the child oftentimes doesn't know what he needs or wants. Um, a child would have a Snickers bar for every meal, an ice cream, if he could have his way, but he has to be told to eat his vegetables, to have his protein, and so forth, just for his own growth and health. The same way as for Christians. If you're an immature Christian, in some ways, you either don't know what you need or the strenuous things of the exercise and the healthy food that you need, you don't have a taste for, you find it hard and difficult, but you still need to do it. Um, and what's interesting too, James, you talked about the ancientness of the liturgy. It actually isn't um, a post-Christ invention, Right. There's liturgy. There was liturgy for the Jewish people. God instituted a liturgy, and um, liturgical life existed in the temple for sure. And we are now the temple as the church. And it also existed in the synagogue when the community would come together to pray and to read the scriptures, which is a lot like our morning and evening prayer. Yeah, I was actually just reading through Henry Chadwick's um, history of the early church. And I had highlighted the line where he talked about that those who use an English prayer book are really um, the successors to the Jewish synagogue where they would have prayers, scripture readings, exegetical sermons, and those types of things. But uh, I wanted to kind of build off of what you were saying um, with liturgy being older than even the incarnation of Christ because talking about the liturgy of the temple itself where we have we see similar things 
happening in the temple, but it's even bigger than just the age or the liturgy being older than the incarnation because the temp or the liturgy of the temple is actually patterned off the liturgy that's going on in the heavenly realms. So we see this in Revelation, Isaiah 6, that when God appears to, say, the prophet Isaiah, his, the train, his train fills the temple, there's smoke, angels singing. Uh, in Revelation, we have the 24 elders surrounding the throne having responsive songs. Um, there's an altar. Angels are offering incense that there's this heavenly pattern happening over and over again. So I think it's important to note that what we're attempting to do here on earth is a participation in the reality that's going on in the heavenly realms. It's a shadow, but at the same time, it's a real participation. Right. Um, one of the big things, and this slips a bit into sacramental stuff, but um, you're in heaven when you are in the Eucharistic liturgy. That's the picture. You're singing with angels and archangels. Uh, you are the temple as the body. You're in the temple, and you're joining in the song of God's uh, people. And so uh, when we think about what happens on a church service on a Sunday morning in an Anglican church, that is the mentality behind it. It's not country club time, and it's not we're doing this because we've always done it this way. It's We've done it this way for so long because we're trying to express and enter into a reality. Um, I just recently was reading an evangelical blogger who was complaining about how we need to revisit the idea of church on Sunday, which you have to be flexible in church planting. I understand that. But his big point was the church event, to use more postmodern terms. And the problem with that was there's this... The experience. Right, whatever you want to call it. It's just this detached view that somehow, uh, like, it's almost as if the blogger didn't ask the question of why do have Christians met at a certain day, the first day of the week. Mm -hmm. So this blogger um, really didn't ask the question of why Christians first began worshiping on Sunday to begin with. Why did you, why would you meet on the first day of the week? Well, it's Easter day, right? Every Sunday is an Easter. We're celebrating the resurrection, the son of God. Um, we need to meet together. We are the temple together. We have to offer up these things together. Uh, we have a certain order because we prayed in the temple, the synagogue a certain way, and these are needful things. Christ uh, didn't remove the temple from the Christian life. He just threw down the false temple or the old temple, uh, and he has own body is the temple now. But a lot of evangelicals today seem to act and think like the temple is just gone altogether as a concept. Yeah, that's uh, bringing it to kind of the modern church and some of the things that they're doing. Like you see people talking about that you should get away from the idea of preaching as preaching and have a conversation or different things. So they're asking the wrong questions. You know, they're... Uh, like you said, they're, they're asking how do we fit the church to a culture rather than saying how do we form people to be who they were created to be as image bearers of God and recreated to be as imaging Christ in the world. Yeah, and, but even more than that, I mean, just, just, the, just the conceit of saying I'm going to figure out a whole way of of religion and here you, you know everyone else follow me and do what i say it seems uh, almost absurd to to someone that's been steeped in the anglican uh, perspective long enough because like we mentioned earlier in the anglican way you come in and then you subject your yourself you see to an outside standard um, and that's the ancient pattern right that's that's the the, the centuries old millennia old pattern uh that even predates christianity uh, I mean, in terms of the, the New Testament, right, part of it. And so you can even find it in the heavens. 
Um, and then we bring that into the modern day and that's our pattern of worship. But then someone comes in today and says, no, I'm going to create a whole new pattern. And then someone comes tomorrow and also says, I'm going to create a whole new pattern. And that seems to be just a, a conceit that is hard. Well, to, I, to, to you know, understand. I want to be a little more charitable than to say to conceit, but it does. Uh, I think you started to hit on the idea of rule, like the rule of St. Benedict or something like that, where it's external and you submit yourself to this rule. And so this is, of course, a very, a very old thing where we acknowledge that, you know what, I, uh, I don't like, let's say, broccoli right now. The, I like Snickers bars, but instead I need to learn to not only acknowledge broccoli is good for me, but I need to learn to love it because it is what is good for me. So this, I think this idea of rule needs to be recovered where everybody doesn't have any sort of, or the evangelical side of the American church doesn't have any sort of foundation or basis to think in those types of categories. Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't have any problem, I don't think, with an exercise regimen or a dietary regimen. But for some reason, the idea of a uh, spiritual regimen is suddenly tyrannous. Um, And what's interesting, too, I think there's two things at work. First of all, there are a lot of people raised in the church but don't really know what they inherited. So, um, of course, you're going to uh, reshape your church stupidly or radically or according to market principles if you don't realize what you've inherited, which is what a lot of evangelicals have done. Let's admit it. A lot of them have been raised in the church and they had no idea what church time is for, and so they say, sure, we'll, we'll totally restructure what it means to live the Christian life in terms of worship. And then when you have people who are evangelized by these folks, they come in, and for them, Christianity looks the way that they were sold, you know? Um, and then they see Anglicanism, and it's claiming to be Christian, and is where they, they almost feel like, was I given a false bill of goods? You know, there's kind of a buyer. Is there a, uh, that's why there's so much strife, I think, in a lot of these arguments, why it's so acrimonious, because it's this idea that um, it's giving Christianity a bad name. It's holding it back. Uh, these old fuddy-duddies are weird. They make it super superstitious. And it's not this understanding of you're actually the new ones and you might have, gotten rid of something that you needed. A couple of comments, Bart. First, uh, you know, the new, the Nova, is praised in our culture. If it's old, it needs to be tossed out. We see this with our architecture and everything like that. So there's um, cultural things to overcome in that way. But uh, let me ask you this. So it's not just a group of people who don't know what they've inherited with things like church time or the liturgy. What about those Christians who willfully rejected things like church time, saying it's not scriptural? <laughs> well, let's discuss that just before we get into that. There's an, actually an interesting uh, precedent because we didn't get to today's uh, situation just randomly, right? The church didn't just appear in the year 2016. Um, you know, we're looking at men like John Owen, who who just said. You know, it's wrong to even recite the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's wrong to do any kind of liturgy. Period. In the 17th century, so it's a it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty well worn argument. Uh, what do you uh, think about that part? Yeah, I guess it's well worn if you know we're starting from five centuries instead of the full 20. Uh, I mean, this it doesn't make it right. And it doesn't mean that it's been necessarily constructive to think this way. Uh, what was interesting is that the sort of, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together, for instance, which is following Jesus's command, pray this way, um, pray this prayer. Uh, they actually had a lot of sustaining power throughout a lot of traditions throughout the Protestant world. It really, I, right? I mean, it's kind of a point of unity. Everybody knows this prayer. But it's that's dying out, right? What'd because so many mega churches and other contemporary churches are dropping it. 
Well, even there's a language barrier now, too. So if the people who do know the Lord's Prayer, they'll know it in a modern English rather than the traditional one that everyone was raised with. Another unity issue there. Well, yeah, and this is, I think this is the enemy's strategy. What better way to break down the enemy force, namely the Christian church, uh, by, uh, by dividing, by causing confusion? What should be unity, the Pentecostal unity, has instead been broken down into confusion and disunity and looking more and more like Babel. But what, what is interesting, even with those raised on the modern stuff, um, who refuse to learn modern English, which is, you know, modern English starts around the 1500s, 1600s, if not earlier. It's a fascinating issue where they do have, a, because they don't have the vocabulary, they don't have the thought, they don't have the doctrine. Hallowed, hallowed. Um, what a powerful, powerful concept that God's name would be hallowed. It's holy. Mm. It is set apart. But even those don't quite get the same umph, not the same inflection, not the same nuance as hallowed. Um, and when you lose that, it's like, well, people don't talk that way now. Well, maybe you should say, what's wrong with now that they don't get that? You know? Agreed. So, right, lots of good words that can be, that can die away, like uh, propitiation, oblation. And we say these in our liturgy every week that they could be lost. And yet I think that the concepts and some of these words uh, that that's so rich that a modern so-called equivalent may not be able to express the depth and the gravity of what these words do. Right. And the problem is what a, what you see at the root of this is a spiritual laziness on the parts of teachers and parents and pastors. I'll call them out now because what I do with my kids in youth group night, we'll go through the order for family prayer, evening family prayer before we start our Bible study. And I will stop. And before I get into the lesson, I will pick out phrases and words and ask the kids if they know what they mean and ask them to regurgitate to me what they understand these words to mean. And I'll tell you what, mostly they've kind of gone through most of their lives just saying what everybody else is saying. But when we have the discussion, like we say vouchsafe, right? Vouchsafe is everywhere in classical Anglican prayers because it's this unique understanding, this unique word that we don't have a modern equivalent for that has this idea of a greater person or Lord um, giving and granting and providing for a lesser liege, or not liege, a lesser vassal, if you will, um, what they cannot provide for themselves. And it's a powerful thing. It shows, it's a verb that shows who God is and where his position is in the whole cosmos and our position in relation to that. And we talk about these things, and all you have to do is make the effort and time. But what a lot of people want to do is they don't want to make the effort in time. They're lazy. And it's like, it's too much work to teach my children these words and to walk my children through this, which is very frustrating because if you don't do it now, you're not going to get the chance to do it in the future. But the culture will certainly tell them all the nuances of sexual identity and gender identity. And they'll put a lot of effort into the right news speak and the right politically correct speak and all the new categories they have to learn, and yet Christians are utterly terrified of forcing their offspring to learn the theological categories, even though that's good for them. That's a great point, vouchsafe. Uh, you, you know, I have, haven't really thought much about that word until you've raised it up just now. That's a perfect example, because it's another decentering word, where you're emphasizing somebody else's greater importance. Uh, you're emphasizing but your own at the same time, it's also emphasizing uh, the benefits that we receive at the hands of this benevolent, uh, greater Lord. That it's that God is guaranteeing right. this, right? And and you start to understand God's powerful love. 
right? So you come in and you're you're reading a, a, a predefined order of service. You're de-emphasizing yourself, your needs. You're emphasizing the needs, uh, the not the needs, the uh, the benefits, right, of of whom you're asking, which is God Himself through the liturgy. So it's a really powerful and uh, oh, yeah, transforming. I think it I is. I think there's an analogy to be made with uh, publishing as well, right? The really good books are republished time and time and time again. I mean, C.S. Lewis will never be out of print, right? Um, and certain books will never go out of print. But you can always tell whether something was good or not or whether something was impactful or not because ultimately it'll go out of print if it's not impactful. So in the same way, when we think about liturgy, we see all the new things that are happening. It's like, well, will this be around in 50 years? I don't know. Maybe not. Will it be reprinted? Probably not. And what's always on, should be in the forefront of the minds of would-be liturgical reformers is the idea that um, what will this sound like and be like and stand in 50 years according to our own standards that we have set for this translation? Right. Yeah, I think that's a that's also very important to keep in mind because there's a there's a short sightedness with all these full scale liturgical revisions because they've immediately dated themselves to this particular era rather than trying to produce something that is can be far reaching, which is what I think uh, the English prayer book tradition has ultimately done. It reaches back into the past, and it also reaches forward into the future. I mean, how many of these same prayers are we praying that were prayed in the 16th century? And even then, going back to the second, as far back as the second century. That's right. And so, so it's, it strikes me that all the modern, even liturgical revisions in, in Rome, even in the Anglican world, uh, that are driven by this, this need to adapt to modernity, not only date themselves and will be out of date in, in a few decades themselves, um, but it seems to me they're driven by the same impulse as our, our you know, evangelical friend because they're trying to adapt themselves to the world rather than in the classical sense, you're, you're, you're saying the person on the street has to come into the church on the church's terms and and here's what the church teaches, and this is what our prayers are, this is what our liturgies are, our tradition and our, our understandings of, of the truth. And, you know, it, it, it is what it is. We don't have to adapt it to anybody uh, else. Riffing off that just a little bit more, too, talking about people dating themselves. It's not only a language issue, but it's actually a content issue. I mean, look at the 1979 Book of Common Prayer and the Baptismal Covenant, where the kind of language and concerns that are put in there are something that are ki is kind of foreign to the church and all the other liturgies that have come before it. Right. So you're actually, in creating this new thing, you have deviated so much from the actual tradition that it's almost unrecognizable. Yeah, and it, that's interesting because you can put it over, you can give it a liturgical guise. You can say, look, I'm wearing a clerical collar, I'm wearing an alb, and I'm using a prayer book. And that's not quite the same, even though I almost appreciate the honesty of the Jesus people and their spawn, in which they're like, yeah, we totally follow every single uh, trend that comes from the culture that we like, and we're trying to be as entrepreneurial as possible, and we are exceptionally unstable, and we're only held together by the charisma of these megachurch pastors and these tropes that we make up. And there's actually, at least they're being honest. Uh, when you have someone who within a liturgic, like a, a traditional tradition, a, a faith and a tradition that tries to be historical and ancient, uh, and then they go progressive like that with their crazy stuff where they really redefine things. It's just an institutionalism at that point. You can't do either. You're neither hot nor cold. You've got a prayer book, so you're not cool. And yet, uh, you don't 
avail yourself of the strength and the alien, um, deep-rooted, ancient character of the faith. Yeah, it's like you're being a uh, a traditional progressive, right? Or uh, uh, an an innovative, right? Uh, it's very frustrating. It doesn't make sense. But um, <laughs> those ones die out the quickest, I'd argue. And we're kind of seeing that even now. But uh, I guess kind of moving on in our discussion about the liturgy itself and what is it meant to do. So we've kind of talked about its ancientness and keeping in terms of the tradition, but what is what is liturgy actually meant to do? Um, so the first point would be, of course, as worship, it is it is our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving as the prayer book magnificently states that this is the whole duty of man is to love and to worship God. And that's what we do every Sunday. So we have a liturgy because it creates an order for such an activity to occur. And the liturgy also has, uh, it has certain assumptions built into it that the fact that the liturgy is what it is, has an assumption of reverence built into it. That what we, we are not coming to be entertained or we are actually coming to worship God and we worship God uh, in spirit and truth by recognizing who God is. God is a God of an order. So the, litur- lit- the liturgy is orderful. Uh, God is a holy God. Therefore, the liturgy engenders reverence in us well, for God. And that creates our second point, which is it creates a kind of Christian, right? It's a maturing so that not only do I worship and have a ordered worship with other Christians, I take that formation from the worship back home with me, if you will, to be in my home, in my work, in my thoughts, and in my individual prayers, so that I am taught how to be a mature and fruitful Christian. This is a good place, I think, to mention that that Latin phrase, right? Lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi, uh, which comes from the ancient ancient Latin, uh, which and it's it's translated as the law of the prayer. The law of praying, yeah. Right, lex vivendi, uh, lex orandi, lex, uh, lex orandi, rather, right? Uh, the law of praying, yeah, becomes the law of belief. What you what you end up believing, uh, lex credendi which then becomes the Lex Vivendi, the law Well, of that latter part, I believe, is the uh, innovative, well, not really innovative, but the work of um, Dean Riches of RES, Reformed Physical Seminary. He really emphasizes how um, the prayers and the sacramental feeding of the church flows out from the altar, from the pulpit, from the sanctuary into the world. Yes. Um, and so that's not only, so getting to the second part about making a particular type of Christian. So the liturgy is not only what we're offering to God, but then what in turn is God doing to us in it. And so we are being formed. Uh, we pray a particular way. I guarantee you a lifelong Anglican, if he's asked to pray a personal prayer, it's going to sound very similar to the prayers that he says in the prayer book. Um, it's going to form us to love the right things, right? Yeah, so, and what's, fasc- what's also interesting, too, is um, this is kind of a pet enjoyment of mine, and it's not always the case, but oftentimes uh, a very consistent classical Anglican who's really been stewing in it for a while, um, then there are very few and far between these days, but they have a wonderful... Um, humble uh, efficiency about them. The prayers are brief and they do not draw attention for oneself. Just like the liturgy, relatively speaking, can be quite brief and draws our attention to God first. It's not about the prayer or minister of the prayer. It's about the God to whom the prayer is addressed. And when it's done, it's done. And there's no need to preach at us or to give a theological treatise or anything else in the midst of that prayer, which is something you certainly find in other traditions. 
Well, even historically speaking, remember when we were talking about Samuel Seabury a few episodes ago, is uh, Anglicans were a weird breed because that because of exactly the brevity bit, right? You had people who would pray for goodness, like twenty minutes longer for a single prayer. It kind of uh, Anglicans were the weird ones there within a congregational and Puritan New England. So this uh, this struggle or the oddity of Anglicanism amongst at least in the colonies and eventually the United States, it's no new thing either. And practically speaking, um, those sorts of prayers, that sort of praying, is really helpful in your day to day life. If you're in the workplace and something ha- happens and comes up, uh, and you're talking to God in your mind, in your heart. You don't break into the long sort of really, I I will call them prideful or showy prayers. You really tend to speak those shorter, more terse prayers that that speak the exact truth you need in that situation, which is, again, what they're there for. They're there for the Christian life. Yeah, but uh, now I'm going to riff off of you there where you talked about even in the workplace. So instead of saying you know, this dichotomy between the prayers from church or the prayers in the workplace where there are two totally different things, Uh, one is very big and showy and the other is terse, is I think what our prayer book tradition accomplishes is saying that all things are sacred. There is sacred time wherever we go and our task is sacred in whatever we do. The prayers, um, at least within the content and the brevity from worship, spill over into these every into everyday life, and I think that's an important part. Is that church in church and the Christian life are uh, you know pretty uh, very much one and the same, and wherever we go, that we take these prayers with us, and they're useful and they're good, and we can always be armed with that and go before God's throne of his heavenly grace to ask for these certain things. And when you think about who who's behind these prayers, it's not someone from 1965 sitting in an office with a bunch of other people thinking about what to say. I mean, you know, you can go back to the fourth century and you'll find people saying these things and writing them down, right? And then being passed on for thousands of years until it gets to you, right? If you think about it that way, not only is the church and the workplace uh, in a kind of unity. But... Well, this, uh, and going back to just the fact of who are the kind of people who made these prayers, because you talk to an evangelical, free church, dissenting kind of person who hates, you know, the old traditional ways, hates the quote-unquote Catholic way of doing things. Uh, it's kind of like they almost imagined a dour, grumpy, wet blanket guy is just like, I'm going to write something just to ruin the Christian life. Right, that's almost what the assumption is. It's like we're never going to use these because you know I'm a free spirit man and I have a really authentic relationship with Jesus. And obviously, we can tell Saint John Chrysostom didn't. You know? Yeah, man. It's kind of just the arrogance of the thought when you reject these. When you reject the Lord's prayer, the God, Jesus Himself speaking it, or a lot of these prayers, it's not as if they got in a committee meeting. It's like, let's try to find the worst, most unhelpful way to relate to our creator, redeemer, and sustainer that we can and force everyone to do it. And then hopefully everybody will flee the church, but it's okay because for some reason we have this terribly selfish agenda. That's not what happened in those meetings? <laughs> but but uh, when you talk to some folks that really... <laughs> Um, have a lot of bile toward whether it be the prayer book tradition or any other sort of liturgical life, you kind of wonder, it's like, who do you think was putting these together? I'm going to you know, risk a guess and say they were much smarter than you, much wiser than you, and probably experiencing a lot more hardship and suffering and persecution than you were. And uh, <laughs> your thought about, well, you know, they didn't really know what it takes to be a Christian in such and such context and such and such time period might have a merit in the sense that, no, they're not in the 21st century with you. But on the other hand, they were doing the Christian life in a way that was apparently sustained them and helped get 
the faith to you who just kind of showed up on the scene recently. I'm pretty sure being a Christian in the second century is probably a lot more difficult than being a Christian in the 21st century, at least in the United States. In the United States. And what's interesting is then we export our shallow, gutted out way of being a Christian to other places. Um, the Holy Spirit is still obviously a very powerfully at work in other contexts. But it all is also interesting. I mean, what would it look like um, globally if we were more keyed into um, the historic nature of the church? And I think persecuted Christians are. They've seen their precedents before them, and they cling to it, and they have a strength to them. Um, I just hope, and, and the words of Scripture are going to cut through all of that, and we did give them the Scripture. Um, but, you know. What? Well, especially the persecuted church, because even in the text in Revelation, all the martyrs are gathered underneath God's throne. That every martyr from every century, including uh, our priest from Nice, France, is there, and they're groaning, Now, how long, O Lord? Something that I found from people, uh, just in my own very limited experience, people that have suffered and from cultures that have had and, and, and continue to have suffering is uh, people from those kinds of experiences have a, a form of humility uh, because in, in some ways they're broken. Whereas a modern evangelical is broken in, in scare quotes, right? They, they, they talk about the brokenness. Hey, hey and is the, that just like a synonym for um, depravity? Because I'm starting to get it as a, a, you could just as well use I'm depraved as well as I am broken. But anyway, continuing right. on. <laughs> right, 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 right. But it's a kind of a, it's kind of a ripped <laughs> jeans brokenness that is showy and, you know, um, you know what I mean? It's almost... Uh, yeah, let's, let's ask the Russian Orthodox... Uh, brothers who lived through communism and were killed all the day long, what they really think about, you know, people from evangelical churches in the United States coming to proselytize them. Yeah. And so, so I mean, think about that. I mean, the, the prayers in our prayer book are composed by people that have, that have truly suffered in a, in a deep and sincere way and have died, right? And, and uh, when you think about it, in that sense, that where this comes from is is centuries old, millennia old, by people that have suffered and that, that have given their all in a way that we today couldn't possibly hope to equal. Um, and there's this and there's this this unity of workplace and church, unity of the centuries, of times and places, even even with the heavenly prayers. We don't think of heavenly prayers as a liturgy, um, but you know the angels weren't just. They had to say they had to, to say, say right? true things in <laughs> even unison, really. The or at least the, concord in unison. Yeah. In unison, the exactly. three times holy, right? We say that in our liturgy now. That this is exactly what the angels are saying up there. Yeah. When we say the uh, sanctus. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's important yeah. um, what kind of things we're upholding here in the states. Uh, while there seems to be a decline in religious and spiritual life here. Because a lot of the exciting stuff that's happening in the church, a lot of the growth, isn't really happening in the West anymore. Um, and the point for us as Anglicans to think about it, especially as North American Anglicans, is to say, well, what's the church going to have to look like in this wasteland? That's a great that's a great point because the 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 message people say is well it has to look like uh, the people that are reaching the culture which are the evangelicals but you're you're saying it seems like right well we I think a lot of the culture that is being created and part of the project that was used to dislodge and overthrow Christendom or at least the Christian Western culture by folks like the Fabian socialists and the clubs in Harvard and so forth. You see with the Jameses and the Deweys and all those sorts of characters. It was to, in effect, de-Christianize, uh, make the culture and the society and the discourse of the same actively antagonistic for to form a Christian. 
to form an orthodox, uh, pious, zealous Christian. There's so many cultural forces that are in the water and that have been engineered or just come upon happenstance to be actively opposed to what it takes to be a Christian, to live the Christian life. Which I think is actually kind of a third point then to what the liturgy is and what the liturgy does. Um, why is Anglicanism exploding in persecuted places? Because I think it gives you something to root down with. I mean, if if persecution ever comes to the Americas, will the ev- those raised in the evangelical pop culture type churches, will they fall away? Well, I certainly hope not, but they're not helping themselves by giving by uh, feeding themselves with this type of uh, soft theology, soft liturgy. Well, think in terms of even 20th century and 21st century um, sufferers and martyrs where you get pinned up in a prison for years or months on end. How are you going to nourish yourself if you haven't had a tradition or what have you memorized in your time as a Christian? Oceans? The song? Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Or or is it going to be the things you've, the prayer confession, which we do all the time, or these other parts of the liturgy where we memorize together, and most importantly, those psalms we do regularly for the daily offices, the Lord's Prayer, and hopefully other scriptures. The most inspiring stories I hear, even from Christians who aren't Anglican in persecuted nations and places, the thing that really seemed to have sustained them is the memorization and the recollection of Holy Writ. Um, and as well as hymns, the strong hymns, the good hymns that bring that Holy Writ into music, which is also has a power of its own, um, is what really can help you sus- sustain you in those times of great difficulty and distress. And to use an old word that isn't to be found and most new, you know, areas travail. In the mm-hmm. travails of this world, um, you know, do you have enough ammo stocked away to deal with it? That's funny you mentioned that too, because uh, it kind of gets me thinking about the Western liturgy in general and the English prayer book tradition, particularly, that we are kind of cross and suffering centered. Like we understand our pilgrimage to be, I think, one uh, that is could be primarily geared towards travailing or suffering, and we're constantly needing the rest and breaks upon the way. Whereas maybe you know, liturgy in the East is not geared towards that sort of understanding. Yeah, I mean, that's well, they do. They have a focus on the resurrection, the celebration of things, and just the. The joy of the conquest of what Satan, uh, Satan being trod asunder, and Christ breaking the jaws of death, and these wonderful truths. We need both, I would argue, um, for here and for that to come. And there's a lot to offer in both. Uh, yeah, I guess my point was is that we we are built. Our liturgy is built for the sufferer. That. It is, it is meant for them to, in a special way that I don't think you can find really most any other place. Yeah, what I find really fascinating in all, in all of this is that uh, we today in, in America and in the West, in the Christian world, are uh, made to see and think that the way forward is, is going to be, you know, ripped jeans and, and guitar music. And, and, th- and those churches aren't, dying out right yeah, so it seems to hold water but uh but you know looking forward 50 years into the future right as was mentioned earlier who among them will be here you know which of those liturgies or or people or traditions will be around right well, how not many right looking i mean back how 50 much years more ago, shallow who was can there you 50 get? years ago <laughs> i mean I, I dare ask i dare not ask the question right. almost but at this so, point but how how much how much worse is it going to get <laughs> Yeah, and what I'm thinking of is that's the image that we're fed of as success, right? And and uh, the you know dynamic and evangelistic and uh, and uh, you know with the numbers with the people in it. Um, but 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 feeding off of you guys' point about suffering and how 
you really can't get away from that, even with modern science and technology. And I know all about those, but you know, I can I can say with confidence that those those features of life that are unpleasant will never go away, right? So uh, we seem to think that those will go away. And if that's the case, then maybe the shallow way will win. But if suffering will always be with us, if if pain, uh, you know, and and the need for for antiquity and the need for eternity uh, will be the permanent features of human life, then perhaps the future of the church truly is liturgical. Yeah, I think so. Um, of course, we have all of that, the travailing and the suffering, and that we're, we're built for the sufferer. But um, make no mistake, our liturgy is also built towards hope that Jesus Christ really is coming again. He will set all things right. Uh, we really do feed on his body and his blood, and that will refresh us to continue. Uh, to carry on um, towards our heavenly home and towards the new heavens and the new earth when we truly will have rest and total victory. But right now, the liturgy built for the sufferer is good because it recognizes that we're still in this transitory state. We're still in the wilderness on our way to the promised land. Um, but it is not devoid it is not devoid of hope. Uh, we know that we must persevere and we must press on. Right, right. Very good. Well, we hope uh, you, dear listener, have enjoyed our discussion of uh, these really interesting and profound and really inexhaustible questions and topics. Um, and we hope that we've brought something of value to this conversation here today. And we hope you join us again next time. Thank you so much. <laughs>